and welcome to the Word with Wed podcast. I'm Eric, and I'm here with Pastor Richard Webb. Hi there. In this show, we get a chance to hear from Pastor Richard on a variety of biblical topics. Uh, Before we get started, though, I want to thank everyone who's tuned in to the episodes previously. Um, The response has been so awesome, and it's been great to hear from a lot of listeners. And um, that's one of our goals with the show is to kind of make it... uh, make it something you can engage with and you can ask questions with. So if you do have any questions or ideas for future topics, uh, you can feel free to shoot me an email directly with the subject line Word with Web. And my email is eric.payton at hopewdm.org. Um, and if you could, real quick, please be sure to uh, rate and review the show wherever you get podcasts. Uh, that would really help us out and you can share the show with a friend so we can uh, try to reach more people. So, in today's episode, we're going to be discussing sin, and for me personally, as someone who works at a church, um, I'm not sure if this is the same with you, Richard, but one of the most common questions I get from people, uh, both inside and outside the church, maybe someone who's curious about the faith, um, have church hurt, or maybe a Christian who's just new to the faith, is, is blank, is fill in the blank, a sin? Um, We want to know if we're we're good with God, right? Yeah. Um, so let's start at the beginning with this one. Um, right after creation, which we've discussed discussed previously, um, what is happening in the fall once once mankind falls, and how do the original readers understand sin? Oh man, this is great. Um, and once again, we want to remind everybody that the Bible functions as a story, not as an instruction book. So if you want to know how the Bible understands sin, you have to understand the st- story where sin first occurs. If you look at Genesis 1, you'll see a pattern, and this matters a lot. Uh, when God creates things, he sees it, and it looks good to him, and then he blesses it. So he sees, it looks good, he blesses. That's a very important pattern. Um, and you see that that he is... He's, he's literally, you see the generosity of God in creation. Um, so, okay, now fast forward to when things start going wrong, and um, we, we've got some spiritual being that is manifesting in the form of a serpent who is convincing that that to be like God, which the first humans were created to be, is not to be like him in terms of character, but in terms of power, control, and domination, and that's the whole thing of, of your eyes will be open to the, you know, that what God said is fake news, and, and I'll give you the real news, and the real news is that if you actually eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then your eyes will be opened and you will be really like God. So the first thing we learn is the argue, you know, that the argument the snake makes is God's a liar and you can't trust him, but you can trust yourselves. So we can begin to see where this is going. This is all kind of building up. Um... And uh, again, the the chapter uh, two chapters before we were told that uh, the first humans were in the image of God. They were like God, but it was all like it was all in terms of character. Now, the other thing we have to talk about is that um, God's law, if we can use that word, is is not like Western legislated law. So sometimes people will read, uh, "You can eat of any tree in the garden, but if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that day you shall surely die." And most Westerners would interpret that is, if you break the rule I have given you, then I will punish you with death. Or more simply, sort of an American slogan, you do the crime, you do the time. That's not what's going on here. What's 
going on here more is you could eat anything, but don't eat that tree. It'll kill you. You know, it's toxic. You know, keep away from that dang thing. It's like you would tell, you know, a child, don't touch the, you know, the stove. It'll burn your hand. You know, you would never say, if you break my rule, I will burn your hand, and then I'll call child services on you. Um, so we discover that when we talk about God's law, we're talking about God's wisdom applied to life rather than a bunch of legislated laws with penalties that will be administered upon disobedience. So what happens? Our parents go for the apple, and what happens? The Bible says, yeah, their eyes were opened all right, and we know now they're blinded, actually, in truth. Um, And um, then what happens is you see three new words. So if God sees it looks good and then he blesses, Humans now see it looks good to their own eyes, and now they take. And that seeing looks good, and taking resonates all the way through Scripture, all the way to King David, where he sees Bathsheba, she looks good to him, and he sends for her to be taken. Bad stuff. Um, and so we discover several things about sin. One is, is sin is foolishness, because our parents decide God's wisdom is not good for them, and so they create their own wisdom. They decide what good and evil is all by themselves. That's another thing about sin is now, as they say, you know, you've heard the this, this statement, man is the measure of all things. Well, that is exactly what the Bible would call sin. Hmm. A posture that you know better, that you can decide for yourself what good and evil are. And, and again, you know, it said, you shall surely die. Well, why would God do that? Well, forget that. Look at history. When we decide for ourselves what good and evil is, it usually winds up in broken relationships, violence, and ultimately death. Okay, so a couple things there. Mm-hmm. As we kind of call back to the creation episode where the the, the creation story in Genesis mm-hmm. is kind of a response to the Babylonian uh, creation myth, Yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So does the fall mm-hmm. continue with that... Um, kind of opposition to the Babylonian. What And if so, what does that myth say about sin? Oh, that's such a powerful question. Well, let's go back to the two chief gods of the Babylonian um, kind of hierarchy. There's Marduk, and he's the order maker. And he manifests as a general in, in armor with his big old spear and a pretty long beard. Um, and then there's his wife, Tiamat, who is the, is, is the god of the waters and also the god of chaos. And, um, uh, and, and so it's interesting that the person who causes chaos, uh, oh, and, and she manifests, I need to include this because otherwise it's no fun, as a seven-headed serpent. Hmm. So we, we talk about, so even the, the story of, of the rebellion of our first parents still has the Babylonian creation story in its head. Not only that, it's got a little bit of a shout out to the Egyptian creation story because one of the gods in the Egyptian pantheon uh, promised wisdom and long life. Um, and that God manifested as, you guessed it, a serpent. So, in other words, it's it's engaging the promises of both the Egyptian pantheon and also the Babylonian pantheon, and it's saying, yeah, they're selling you land in Florida, and it's turning out to be a swamp. You know. So, one of the ways I talk about the serpent is the name serpent uh, is more of an editorial than it is an actual description of what the thing physically looks like. So I call it the snake in the grass, you know, trying to sell you some snake oil. Okay. Um, 
And so here we got the snake in the grass who's going to lie to you, pretending that God has lied to you. And, and, you know, that God has given you fake news when, in fact, that's the job of the snake in the grass is to give you that. The snake in the grass is, is, is a reference to a chaos monster. So here comes the snake hell-bent on creating chaos with God's creation. And that's exactly what happens. So remember, God said, don't touch that tree, it'll kill you. Well, if you get to the first children of our first parents, that's what happens, violence and death. And, and so we discover something is this is also another kind of commentary on the Babylonian story is Marduk, um, when he gets into conflict with Tiamat, because remember, he's the order bringer god, he cuts Tiamat in half and out comes creation. And, you know, yay, okay, you know, we, we dealt with chaos. Well, no, you didn't, because we learned that violence is part of chaos. So one of the critiques that the Bible is, is that Marduk is attempting to create order, but using the tools of chaos. Okay. And, and, and so, because that's the seduction, is our first parents will have all this power, and they can make things orderly according to their understanding of order, which then, as we start seeing how this works out, creates more chaos. Okay, so what, one thing I was going to ask you uh-huh. um, is, why would God create the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yeah, and yeah. now as I'm listening to you, um, that with the serpent and that maybe being a little bit of a response to you said the Egyptian um, snake headed mm-hmm. god or whatever it yep, was yep. that promised wisdom is the uh, the narrative of don't eat from this tree mm-hmm. saying anything about don't um, don't follow these other gods because that is sin yeah it it it's foolishness it'll get you nowhere good okay um. And, and this goes back to what we talked about, I think, in a, a couple, when we were talking about creation, is um, that when we think of the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and good and evil, the, often the first question people have is, why would God set up our first parents that way by putting that tree in the garden? And why why does he not want us to have this wisdom or uh-huh. this knowledge? Yep. And, 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 and again, uh, when we look at how the Old Testament writes things, everything's intentional. There's no error here. But it's not Western way of thinking about history. And so Western way is almost like a video camera history where we want an objective reporting that's super linear. Um, Where the Eastern way is to mix um, a, a teaching moment or an editorial moment together with a story. And so the story really happened. Our uh, humanity rebelled against God and bad things happened. And God is a good and gracious and generous God. That's all true. And, and and yet the way they want to talk about the rebellion, they use symbols. So the tree of life turns out to be God himself. Jesus himself says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And in Hebrew, tree and bush are the same thing. So a grapevine is a grape tree. Um, just like the burning bush is a burning tree. It's the same word. Um, and, and so we have the tree of life that you take of, and, and this is participating in God's life. And then there's the tree of knowing good and bad. That's literally how it would be in Hebrew. And that symbolizes um, taking, uh, in other words, taking um, wisdom and redefining it for yourself. In other words, it's the tree of you, you know. And, and, and so, 
suddenly I be, if I take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I am declaring myself to be my own God, and I'm declaring that I am wise enough to define good and evil for myself. I mean, this sounds like the Marlboro man, you know, from the old cigarette commercials. You know, no one's going to tell him what to do. Or Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. Or the end of Invictus, damn all the gods there may be. I am the captain of my own soul. And I mean, you know, it, it is just, it runs deep in both Western culture, but also the American psyche that we know best. And, and you know, and then God just is kind of like a Dr. Phil and says, how's that working out for you? Does it also run deep in the in the ancient Hebrews culture as well? Because mm-hmm. there was obviously a need for this to be addressed. Oh the, goodness a, a gracious! Sin to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I was just using some. You know, it's a cultural value okay. in, in in Western and American culture to be the one who decides for themselves. Um, but I think you're you're absolutely spawned on. It's been a cultural value ever since the rebellion, and, and so. You know, that's why it's being addressed, because the Bible sees what we call sin as the problem. It is why we have violence. It's why we have things like sexism and racism, uh, why we have colonialism and imperialism, why we feel, tr- you know, free to trash the planet. I mean, because we're told in, in, in sort of the primal job description to serve the land, watch out and take care of each other, and have each other's backs, and instead we flip that to dominate the land and bash it into submission, exploit each other, and only have each other's backs when it's convenient for us, mm-hmm. you know? Okay, so to back up a little bit, what's uh-huh. interesting about the the fall uh-huh. is uh-huh. that God says, you know, don't eat from this tree because uh-huh. you'll die. Yep, yep. They do, mm-hmm. and they don't die, mm-hmm. as we would yeah. imagine it, right? We, yeah. we As you're talking about this, we imagine like... Um, you 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 mess up, you get uh-huh. punished. Mm-hmm. A d- direct, almost correlation between yep, yep, that, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like maybe the the die that God's talking about uh-huh. is you're falling into a foolish life that will be as it, it won't be as life giving as if you follow this, oh, follow it, my way. Yeah, it will take you out. And I think we need to take death seriously. Again, it's not if you break my rule, I will kill you. It's more, don't do that. That'll take you out. Mm-hmm. So think about that, metaphorically speaking, and this is so powerful. Our first parents move away from, from eating the tree of life, participating in God's life, which creates eternal life. Um, and instead, and, and remember, think of it also like a battery and a battery charger. So God, you know, he'll charge your battery forever. Instead, they decide to be their own batteries. And when when is the last time that a battery has been able to charge itself? So, you know, so in a lot of ways, they turn away from participating in God's life, which gives life, and then they turn to participating only in their own lives, which have limited shelf life without God. So now they're eating on something that's going to take them out. And as a result, our first parents do die because they're no longer connected to the source of life. They've willfully disconnected. And, and they foolishly believe they can keep generating their own life all by themselves. Well, then history happens, and we see how that works out. You know, one is our first parents do die because they decay. They willfully decided they don't want God's life. Well, then they get what they get. You know, and then that works itself out in violent behavior with their children. You know, and now here's what's interesting about God. Let's just interject a little bit about God. 
at the end of the story of human rebellion, the very last thing is God takes care of them by clothing them. And, 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 and basically says, okay, I, you now regard each other as adversaries, so I'm going to put clothes on you to symbolize I'm going to still watch out for you, take care of you, protect you, and have your back, even if you don't want it. And the last word about Cain, who murders Abel, is God puts a mark on Cain to protect him. And in some ways, to boundary the violence that would happen against him when people come out to get revenge. And so God is still intervening in our rebellion to boundary it and, and protect us from ourselves. I mean, you know, so even in the stories of, of wholesale rebellion and, and the violence that comes from it, God's still saying, I'm going to save you from yourself. Okay, that's that's great. That's a lot of good things. Um, let's let's do a little bit of word study you on the word sin, because mm-hmm. um, I, I feel like that's not a word we use in our everyday everyday language, nope. right? So, what is the first time we hear about sin is in Genesis four seven, where mm-hmm. um, God uh, says that sin is crouching at your door, and if you if you do what is right. Um, and so sin appears to be this thing that is doing what's wrong. Yep. Right. And, and not only that, we get this language that sin seems to have creature-like characteristics. Sin is crouching. Its desire is for you. But if you do well, you can master it. You know, and so that sounds like an unruly animal. Um, and again, let's connect this again with a snake. And then we go back to the Egyptian god of long life and wisdom, and we go back to the Babylonian god of chaos. So there's a sense that not only is sin foolish behavior and a foolish life posture, but it also seems to be an embodied evil that wants to take you out. So we both have the human behavior and the human foolishness, a distorted life perspective, but then we also have an evil that seems to have some coherence to it. Later in the biblical tradition, this will be called the devil, or the accuser, or the or the or the or the Satan, which means the adversary or the enemy, and, and so we were seeing the beginnings of coherent evil that winds up to be um, a fallen spiritual being, and in fact, that's what people would interpret the serpent being. Um, and again, that's also a commentary that maybe the god of the waters is not someone you want, it may be a fallen spiritual being that has decided to hijack the Babylonian myth system and, and, and get, you know, the whole empire to worship it, mm-hmm. you know. Okay, so again, a little bit of a callback to a previous, the, the creation episode that yep. we did, mm-hmm. where in the beginning, there were these chaos waters and God mm-hmm. creates mm-hmm. order out of those. Yeah, yeah. Would it be accurate to say that... Um, Chaos mm-hmm. is synonymous with sin. Yeah, it is. As sin is a chaos-making behavior. And I would also say, as you keep going in Genesis, we discover that sin is an act of discreation. In other words, God separated chaos and boundaried it and created order. And what's so amazing is there's three chaos symbols in Genesis 1. It's the waters, the darkness, and the wasteland. And then the wasteland is the primary symbol in Genesis 2. Well, what does God do? He takes the chaos of the darkness, adds light to it, and redeems the chaos into something useful, and now we have time, night and day. 
God takes the, the chaos, the waters, and does two things to it. Number one, separates the waters from below and the waters above, and makes the waters above fruitful as rain. Number three, God pulls from the chaos, the waters, land. So now we have land and sea. And then ultimately, sea is orderly. It's, it's a mode of transportation between the land and the land, the continents and the islands. And it also provides nourishment, and, and it's a place where we can fish. So you can see God is in the redemption. God knows God doesn't just destroy chaos. God's harness, God harnesses it, and then he makes it useful for human flourishing and for the flourishing of creation. When we sin, we begin to undo all that. We create chaos in relationships. We create chaotic behavior that destroys life. God calls it violence. And out of that, if it's unchecked, it produces death. Um, you think of, for example, if we mess with the environment, uh, people die from environmental distortion. We call it pollution. Uh, people die from toxic chemicals that we produce. Um, people die from toxic lifestyles where they get stress-related diseases or the stress aggravates diseases. We get genetic degradation. Um, I mean, it goes on and on and on. Um, you think of the amount of diseases that were produced from the atomic bomb in Japan, you know, or the amount of de diseases that people still suffer from in Vietnam because of things like Agent Orange, you know, and we can go on and on and on and on. Yeah. Let's go a little bit back to uh -huh. kind of the, the, the meaning of the word sin and how the original audience would have uh -huh. understood it. Um, maybe a little removed first from, um, the, a religious perspective. Oh, absolutely. Right? What, what would it have meant just in everyday life yeah. uh, for someone who's maybe not a Jew? Yep. Um, so, um, in the Middle East, um, well, I'm going to actually start with, with Hebrew words because they're kind of my anchor. Okay, yeah. And now these will reflect a general Middle Eastern perspective. Um but it, it, I think that it, this is a good place to start. Um, so the first generic word is chata. And chata just simply means to fail. So, uh, for example, um, there is a story um, where someone's being taught archery, and the teacher is so good that he keeps his pupil from chata. In other words, missing the mark. And so, so one of the ways to talk about sin is you fail to live up to the wisdom God has given you. Um, it, and, and, and so there's a failure to love God, and there's a failure to love others, and there's a failure to be truly human. Um, and so to not be the kind of human being God has designed you to be, um, you, you miss the mark from the design specifications. So that's the general word. That also is a word for simply getting off the path of wisdom. God's law is often called the path of life or the path of wisdom. So in this case, it's the simple word, the generic term for getting off that life path, that wisdom path. Now we have another word, avon. And avon means to diverge from that way. It's to be bent. We get our word crooked from the same concept. Oh, there's a crook who's crooked. Uh, in other words, we're not failing to be human. Now our humanity is distorted. Now we're talking about more of a condition than a behavior. And, and so we are twisted or disfigured or corrupted 
or the results of being this way is other people become this way because of us. Um, and, and, and so um, we become broken. And so, and, and typically the way the Bible will translate it is iniquity. Um, we'll have avon. We, we, we carry a, a distortion in us. Now, interesting, the word for forgiveness often means for someone to take responsibility for us. Parents often will do that, is they'll take responsibility for their kid's mess, and, help, and they'll clean it up, and then teach the kid how not to make the mess again, right? Mm-hmm. And well, God does the same thing. He will carry our mess. The cross is the ultimate where God takes responsibility for our iniquity. For our brokenness, our distortion as human beings, and the way we, through our behavior, have broken others, God owns that and puts the puts things back together in a way we can't. Just like a parent will put things the way back together the way a kid can't. And then there's a third one where we talk about the intentionality of rebellion, and this is pesha, and this is a very relational word. So um, we commit pesha um, with somebody. And, and so we rebel, we defy, or we violate or break trust, or we break an agreement with someone, betr- betray them, um, or we withdraw commitment. All that is pesha. And, 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 and this is more of a deliberate thing, is I don't like the commitment I made to you. It's inconvenient for me, so I'm just going to stop doing it. You know, regardless of what you think, I'm just going to decide I don't want to live up to it anymore. Um, you know, that's why many corporations have, you know, a f- you know whole offices of lawyers, and they help pe- the, the corporation commit pesha against another corporation, how to get out of an agreement. You know, or another company will sue, or an individual will sue because um, they violated the terms of agreement, so they've taken them to court for pesha. And again, the word that's used in the Bible is transgression. Um but it has a sense of intentionality. I no longer want to agree to the terms of, of, of the covenant I have with God or the neighbor. And, and so I, I will deliberately do that. So, and now, now those are the Old Testament uh-huh. uh, words about sin. Yeah. Um, let me ask you. So there's 600 and how many laws uh-huh. in the mm-hmm. Old Testament? Yeah. Um, are they all addressing some sort of sin um, in one of these three senses? Are they all um, morality uh, type things? Actually, no. Uh, And this is why using Western morality ways of thinking really do weird things to reading the scriptures. Um, They, in fact, this is fascinating. The, The Ten Commandments, if you think in terms of, of literature and grammar, are not commands. They're ten descriptions of, of the God life that God has given us. Let me give you an example. It's not, do not have any gods before me. It's, there aren't any. You know, mm. hey, I, I, you know, I, I, just, I just took down the entire Egyptian pantheon. So why would you want to bow down to them? They have no power. They're done. I beat them. I just demonstrated to you that Pharaoh has no power over you. Why would you go up back and behave like your slaves? So I like to call the Ten Commandments the Ten Definitions of Freedom. The Ten Definitions of what it means to live life with God. And if we were to get super nerdy, they're literally the Ten Conditions of God's treaty with us. If he's the king and we're his subjects, this is the definition of that relationship. 
Um, but they're also descriptions of reality. Um, and they're also descriptions of wisdom. If you live in, within these 10 words, these 10 commandments, you will ha- live in the wisdom of God and have a good life. Hence, that's why often the Torah is called the path of life or the path of wisdom. Now, what are those other you know laws, those, um, what would they be, 798 laws? They're all case study. And they're divided into, yes, moral, ethical behavior, but then also instructions for how the temple rituals are to be performed. And then also, there are little skits that point to how we live and what God is doing about the mess. So there's a whole group of them we call the cleanliness laws. And for example, if you, you know, if you work in a mortuary, you know, if you're one of those responsible for taking care of dead bodies during the period of the wilderness wandering, uh, then you're in contact with death. And death is the ultimate result of the rebellion. So you got death on you. And frankly, every sin will get death on you. But there are things that are not sins that will also get death on you, like handling a dead body. So uh, the way the skit works is that God is life, so coming into presence with death on you doesn't work. So what do all those people do who've handled death bodies? Again, they've not sinned. Well, they do a little skit where they go out, and, and, and because they have death on them, they have a chance to meditate on why on earth would they have death on them. Well, it's because humanity is in a state of death. We've rebelled. We've disconnected from the power source. So there's a point of meditation, a set set of days where you think about that, and then you perform a ritual where you wash it off. And, and, and here's a case of where water now cleanses you from the, the death on you. Just like the Red Sea cleansed the people from the death that the Hebrews wanted to bring on them. I mean, they, the Egyptians wanted to bring on the Hebrews, you know, which is just so kind of cool. So they go through a little Red Sea skit, and later that'll be called baptism. Yeah, I was just going to say a callback to our baptism episode now. Yeah, yeah. Um, cleanliness was part of mm-hmm. the original uh, in, in purpose or intent of, of baptism we talked about. Yeah. Um, is cleanliness also directly is synonymous with sin or lack of sin. Sin makes you unclean, uh, but but not because it's, it's sin, it's because you got death on you. So the best way to think of it is cleanliness is the absence of, of the touch of death. And, and, and so there's several ways you can have the touch of death on you. You can, um, you, you can work with a dead body. Uh, there are also, if, if you have sex with your spouse and it doesn't produce, you know, literally what's left over from that because it won't produce life is death. And so you and your spouse are unclean. Um, and, and so you also go through the cleanliness skit um, because uh, our first parents were clean, which means they didn't have death touching them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's why when, when you see the cleanliness rules related to sex, is it like, does God hate sex? It's like, no, 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 no. But there are things left over that will not produce life that are meant to produce life. Does that make sense? Yeah, we're getting there. There's still a little bit of like, so so back with when, when God's mm-hmm. talking to Cain, he says, mm-hmm. you know, sin is crouching at your door, door mm-hmm. if you, if you, and you, sin is not, is if, is doing what's not right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then we have the the morality or the the laws in the Old Testament. Uh-huh. Some which are morality, some which are not. Yeah, yeah. That make you clean and unclean. Uh-huh. But 
being unclean does not necessarily mean you're you're doing anything wrong. Exactly. Um, it's not sin. It's uncleanliness. Right. And do we do we sometimes mix those two too much in in understanding of being the same thing when they're just not? Yes, we, we confuse them. Um, and, and this is why sometimes we will treat people badly when they do something we don't agree with. Um, and this has a lot to do with honor and shame. And the Roman and Greek societies were heavy on honor and shame. Um, and, and, and so if you, uh, if you behaved in a way that was non-normative in, in Greek and Roman societies, then you incurred shame. Um, but also honor had power that was associated with it. So wealthy Romans would go out and, um, you know, they would build aqueducts or schools or whatever to accumulate honor. And that allowed them to be, you know, more likely voted into the Senate or to be conferred a position of governor or judge. And so in that way, it was in the Roman wealthy class's self-interest to accumulate honor because that would increase their wealth and power. Um, and likewise, poor people had a hard time accumulating honor because poverty itself was shame. And so what happens is as Christianity became more Gentile, the way to make sense of sin, they started using Roman categories of honor and shame. So if you sinned, then you were shameful. And, and then we started treating people as less than because, well, they're sinners, and then often what we did is we boxed them into a cycle of sin because, well, we don't want you in our church because you're a sinner. So we would cut them off from the very thing that would clean them up. So we would say, you're welcome in our church if you stop sinning and you, and you come in clean and look like us. You know, or you know, let's say someone committed a sexual sin in our churches. Well, then instead of seeking to restore the way God does we would cast them out because, oh, they'll get that on us. You know, which means we had no way to clean people up other than to exclude them. Which means they're not clean, they just kept us from getting dirty. So it's this funny, goofy mixture and misunderstanding of cleanliness rituals with also the issue of sin. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm working on these two, mm-hmm. I'm trying to separate these two in my brain. If I understand this right... Why we wanted to be sinless or why we want to be sinless is because the way of sinlessness uh, provides life. That's mm-hmm. the best life mm-hmm. that God provides. It's wise. It's life-giving. Why be clean? Mm-hmm. Is that is that have anything to do with God being able to, I don't know, be around us? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. is God able to be around sin, and he's he be able to be around uncleanliness? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, why why be sinless and why be clean? Okay, first of all, you're just blowing my brain up. I mean, okay, this is so cool. You're asking like these crazy important questions. They're 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 complicated. So let's just admit that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. Here's the way I would put it. First of all, can a holy God be in the presence of sin? The answer is yes. He sought out our first parents. He took care of Cain even after he had royally biffed it by killing his brother. So we know that God loves sinners and likes hanging around them so that they will stop being sinners. 
But even when we continue to be stupid, and by the way, that's another word for sin in the Bible. In other words, um, since category, the Bible's categories for for um, um, following God and from rebelling against God are, are wisdom and foolishness. Hmm. And the actual Hebrew word is stupidity or idiocy. And we're not talking about IQ or developmental disability. We're talking about deliberately acting against your self-interests and literally discreating both your environment and the environment of those around you. So a, a way to, a, a kind of a good shorthand for sin is sin is self-sabotaging def- behavior that will take others out in the process. Um, and so God's like, why do you keep wanting to put your hand on that hot stove? And why are you going around putting other people's hands on that hot stove? Stop it. You know, and so God is is wrapping up people's hands with bandages after they put their hands on the hot stove. It's another way of thinking of sin and in God's response to it. And he keeps trying to teach us over and over again, stay away from that hot stove. Use it for cooking. Don't put your hand on it. That's just plain dumb. So the cleanliness rituals were not about God not wanting to be around you. They were trying to tell you what the problem is. You're living with death all around you, and that is a condition of sin, even if you haven't personally sinned. In other words, you happen to be living with the results of other people's mess, and somehow they've set an emotion where you're inevitably going to create the mess yourself. So even if you haven't sinned, like touching a dead body, that's not a sin, but that's the results of collective sin. It is the mess that we all live in that's created death for even people who didn't deliberately do death-dealing behaviors. We just live in the mess that our first parents created. Mm. And so, because of that, God wants to, to, to remind us that is the situation. That's why you hurt. That's why you suffer disease. That's why somebody else can harm you. This is the mess. So I'm just thinking about this, and in and it's it's coming into better picture. My mm-hmm. my son in his class, um, he was just telling me the other day how his class lost, um, I think it was recess or something like mm-hmm. that. They, something mm-hmm. they wanted to do mm-hmm. because the class was being um, not good for the teacher, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And he was telling me, but I didn't do anything wrong, mm-hmm. but he suffered the consequences of it because the the class was not doing what the teacher had asked. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we were kind of talking through how this was still a, a, a teaching opportunity. So you're, as I'm thinking about this, the cleanliness is almost a teaching opportunity or a learning opportunity for people to not suffer the consequences, but feel the, the weight of mm-hmm. sin being in the world. Yep. Is that correct? Yeah. In other words, we discover that there's collective mess. Now, I think the analogy breaks down with the teacher because the teacher created a rule that everybody broke. That's more of legislated law, Mm. where with the wisdom, let's say the kids had all gone outside and they refused to wear their coats. Now, of course, a teacher would prohibit that, um, but let's say they did it anyways in our little thought experiment. And so they all come in with raging colds. Well, the teacher would say, well, we can't have you do that again, so in order to heal you, we're going to keep you inside. And the kids are like, and one of them actually went out with a coat. And the teacher could say, well, yeah, but your classmates are going to get in the hospital if we could let them keep going out the way they want to. 
So unfortunately, to keep them all alive, we're all going to stay inside. Gotcha. You know, okay. and so that would be a sign of the teacher's care, but it could be interpreted as a limit imposed because everybody was foolish. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Okay, so we've we've kind of gone over, I feel like covered a lot of the Old Testament and how the ancient Hebrews thought about sin yeah. and cleanliness, mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. Or, or is sin uh, developed in the New Testament understanding mm-hmm. um, and maybe more the Greek mm-hmm. um, word study of it? Absolutely. So when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, uh, because at this point, um, this is probably about 150 years before Jesus, more Jews spoke Greek than they spoke Hebrew. In fact, almost n- nobody was speaking Hebrew. The folks uh, who lived in the area of Judea would be speaking a mixture of Hebrew and Assyrian or Akkadian, and that was called Aramaic. So, I mean, so the rabbis got together and said, you know, we, we need to make the, you know, the, old, the Hebrew Bible available to, to Jews. So they translated into Greek. And so for the word hata, they swapped in the Greek word hamartia. For the word avon, they swapped in anomia. Uh, and, and, or, and then for the word transgression, they used a couple words. Um, and so I will walk through those. So we'll start with hata. They swapped in hamartia, which means the fatal flaw that takes the hero out in a, in a Greek tragedy. Um, and so, for example, with Oedipus Rex... Uh, ignorance is his fatal flaw because he marries his mother. And, and, and then when he figures out what he's done, he goes and blinds himself and wanders around aimlessly. Um, for Agamemnon, her fatal flaw is arrogance, and she takes on the entire judicial system where she would have been declared not guilty, but she decides to get all principled and not submit. And so then she winds up being executed. Um, and, and so... Um, so sin is that fatal flaw that will ultimately take you out. And, and again, you know, don't touch that thing. It'll burn your hand. Don't eat that thing. It's toxic. It'll kill you. So it addresses that aspect of sin. Um, and then for iniquity, um, and this is where um, Avon and Pesha get a little mixed up in the Greek translations, but anomia is, is, is like a crime against society. So it's a larger offense, but it's also an, it's a relational offense against someone. So it kind of wanders into the language of breaking trust or betraying. Um, but it um, and, and then they have another one that that is often translated transgression, where it's um, anama. So it's related to anomia, and it means lawlessness or disregard for the order of society. Uh, in this case, that's the way the Greeks would think of it. Then if you put a Hebrew spin on it, it's a disregard for the order of creation, where you're literally engaging in behaviors that are going to create chaos. So there's the chaos making. And then there's parapta, which means to go beyond the limits of the order of society. And again, Hebrews wouldn't be thinking of society much as they would be going beyond the limits of the order of creation. And then you add to there, um, just like Pesha is treachery. Um, you know, where you're betraying people. And, and you'll notice there's a little slippage between the Hebrew words and the Greek words, and that's because it's different cultures. Now, 
God's pretty good of, of able to keep things straight. So this isn't like watering down God's word, but it's adjusting the camera angle to the way the Greeks would think about it. Uh, the most important one, I think, the two most important things is that in Greek, sin is the fatal flaw that'll take you out. So it has automatic consequences, just like the Hebrews would think of it. And then the other one is, is sin is treating your neighbor badly and also betraying God by walking away from God's commitment to you and, and deciding that you want to rearrange, rearrange things on your own terms. So that's the way I see it. So it's not a tight one-on-one with the, with the Greek words for sin. Uh, there's one other one, and this has, in, in Greek um, language, it would have to do with how you perform the rituals, and it's sebia, and so we would call that being pious or having piety. Now, the Hebrews don't really have a concept like that. So when they use sebia, it means breaking relationship with God, and that would be when you're asebia. And again, the Greek word would be impious when you, refer, when you refuse to perform the rituals correctly for the, the God you worship. Where this would be basically, asebia would be giving God the finger. So, it, it, in other words, you just are walking away from God and you're doing everything you can in your behavior, you know, whether you were a Levite and you performed the rituals wrong deliberately like Levi's, you know, Aaron's two sons did, um, or you're, you're just treating the neighbor badly in a deliberate way and you're walking away from God's wisdom in an intentional way. That would be asebia. Okay. So, as we look at the New Testament and how... Well, first of all, I love how Isaiah then, as he talks about um, what this coming Messiah is going to do, mm-hmm. um, in Isaiah 53, um, says he's he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our, in- our iniquities. So, he kind of hits two of those words. Um yeah. What is the ancient Hebrew understanding of what the Messiah will do to sin, and then what does Jesus actually do to sin? How does he affect sin in the world? Well, where you just went, Isaiah 53, mm-hmm. uh, that was for the rabbis a head-scratcher. It was sort of like, what? Messiah is supposed to come in like David and to take the throne of David rescue Israel, restore Israel to the land, and and put Israel's mission back on game, which was be a light to the nations. What's all this talk about the Messiah suffering and taking the consequences of Israel's rebellion? That was weird. So, nobody could make sense of that, and Jesus is like the first figure to make sense of that. In other words, Jesus' own self-understanding is to be a Messiah is, is to take on the consequences of Israel's rebellion. So, when the Jesus followers looked back on, on the prophets, um, part of the way they made sense of Jesus' strange behavior and strange death and then subsequent resurrection was through these, these, um, this poetry that, uh, uh, that nobody could figure out. In other words, how does this make sense of the Messiah? Well, they looked at Jesus and said, well, no, it makes a lot of sense of Jesus. So, what we discover if we take passages like that or um, 
you know the the whole thing of who could believe our report you know this 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 person winds up you know you know by his you know stripes which would be a, a beating we are healed you know and he he becomes the iniquity of us all you know all those strange passages of a suffering messiah or a suffering servant you make perfect sense of what happened to jesus and so if we were to pull it all together what we get in those passages is there's sort of three readings that make sense of these passages, is that the suffering servant in some places just looks like God's people, Israel. In fact, in some places, that's just it comes out and, and interprets it that way. There's other places where it looks like a stand-in for Israel, that God's suffering servant, who has been chosen and anointed, that's where we get our word Messiah, it literally means in Hebrew, anointed, um, is going to stand in and take care of the Israel problem. Uh, and then the third one is it appears that this suffering Messiah is going to be God himself. And, 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 and that's like weird. Well, in the story of Jesus, this all comes together. Jesus is an Israelite. You know, so he fits the bill of God's people you know, he, or in this case, he's a Jew. That would be the word used in the first century. Um, Jesus is also being a stand-in. He's claiming to be the anointed one, the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ. And he's also claiming to be God himself. So he in Jesus, all three ways of reading Isaiah come together in one person. He is a, he is a faithful Jew who is going to complete the mission of Israel. He is the stand-in for Israel, the chosen, the anointed, the Mashiach, the Christ, and he also claims to be the great I Am. So what happens is it turns out nobody can clean this mess up except God himself. Um, because when God himself shows up, then Israel once again rebels and kills off their own God, because they want to be autonomous and decide for themselves what good and evil is. Hmm. Still taking a bite of the apple, I see. You know? Mm -hmm. So God suffers the consequences of wrath, and it turns out it, it's the wrath of his own rebellious creation comes down on him like a ton of bricks. Isn't that amazing? There's wrath in the cross, but it turns out to be human wrath against God. So instead of it being sinners in the hands of an angry God, as the famous sermon from Jonathan Edwards put it, it turns out to be God in the hands of angry sinners. Oh, interesting. Isn't that interesting? And so he takes on human wrath, which is also sin. It's the ultimate Pesha. He takes on the Pesha of humanity and carries it. By the way, that's a word for forgiveness in the Old Testament is to carry somebody's Pesha. Hmm. And that's literally what happens. He heaps the sin of the world, not only the behavior, the sinful behavior, but just the whole sinful mess, the death of the world. He throws that on his own shoulders, takes it to the grave, and leaves it there, and comes up in victory. Which means that for him, death is behind him. So he becomes, strangely, this little nerdy, the Lord both of existence and non-existence. In other words, he stands above chaos and order. And that's how he, I mean, in other words, that's the creator. Mm -hmm. 
but he also creates new creation out of the chaos of our sin. So once again, he's separating the waters from the land, metaphorically speaking. This time he's separating the sin from creation and creating new creation. And so all those who, to take, who, who accept his invitation to, to walk with him, once again are taking of the tree of life. Isn't that amazing? And, and so that way, the tree that, that, that God himself was killed on, once again, which was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was the human-constructed tree, the cross made of wood, he has transformed strangely into the tree of life again. Hmm. And so God's response to sin is to wade into the middle of it and defeat it so that sinners may be rescued. Mm-hmm. And the word rescue, we also translate sal- salvation. So we are being rescued from the empire of sin, symbolically known as Babylon or Egypt, and we are be given an exodus from sin, and we begin the journey back to life, the life journey. And that's manifested by trusting Jesus that he can rescue us from ourselves, mm-hmm. from our own self-created hell. Okay. So if, if Jesus has um, redeemed sin mm-hmm. and he's put it to death, conquered it, why is it that we still experience the consequences of sin or how that's still something that exists? Why the heck are we still putting our hand on the dang stove? Right. Yeah. Oh, this is interesting. I, I'm going to do it from a historical standpoint. Mm-hmm. So, one of the the uh, sure and certain signs that God had come to, to deliver Israel and reset things mm-hmm. was resurrection. When the dead arise, we know that the age to come has broken in, and that's the age of restoration. That's the age of justice. That's the age of new life. It's the age when God has put things right, what we call judgment. It's the right-making of God. And we read in Matthew that when Jesus cries out his last and the temple veil is torn, it also says that many of God's people, the saints, the holy ones, and Israel was known as the holy ones, rise from the grave. So there's all there's this mass resurrection that's recorded in Matthew that often people just go right over. Yeah. You know, imagine, you know, you're eating dinner, you know, in Jerusalem, and, and and all of a sudden Uncle Shlomo shows up and he's been dead for 20 years, you know, and he asks for some matzah, you know, and you're like, what? You know, mm-hmm. can you imagine just the, uh, the, the buzz in Israel when all these dead people show up? Well, what's a good Jew to believe but the age to come is broken in? Well, that's what Jesus said when he said the kingdom of God is near. And now we got proof. Mass resurrection. But wait a second. Herod's still on the throne. We still have the corrupt Sadducees running the temple. And Caesar's still on his throne. How can this be the age to come? Well, there's a bunch of head scratching. And then the Jesus followers, especially the ones who, who have been thinking about this, like Paul, who's you know one of the chief major rabbis of all Israel, who's now following Jesus, they devise a term for what seems to be this overlap between this present age, that's the age of sin, the age of death, and the age to come, which is the age of life where death is vanquished, and they call it, they, they discern it's an overlap, and they call it these last days. 
Well, these last days not only exist historically, but they also exist in us. And so Paul will talk about this when he says, you know, the good that I would do, I don't do. And the thing is, the evil that I don't want to do, I do anyways. What the heck? Why is there a war going on me? Why is there this overlap where I'm, you know, simultaneously new creation, but I still seem to behave as if I'm the old, in the old creation? And so he creates shorthands. So there's this old nature in us. There's an old self. And this is still the self. He calls it the rotting corpse. And there's a Greek word, sarks, for that. And it gets translated often, the flesh. But a better word is the rotting corpse. Is is the self in us that's still behaving in the, in the death way. But then there's the self that's been created by Christ, the new creation. And he often uses the word spirit, uh, or the old the old Adam, the old nature, and the new nature. And and they're overlapping just like the ages are overlapping. And that's why we still do dumb stuff. But God has promised in the end. When everything is settled, all that will be left is the new us that will live forever. Mm-hmm. And the old us that keeps engaging in self-defeating behaviors and attitudes is going to be gone. Yeah. So, back in the uh, gospel episode, we talked. Mm-hmm. you talked similarly about this on how yeah. the analogy was when there was a, a battle that had been won, maybe mm-hmm. the, the word had not quite gotten out that someone new was on the throne. Right. Um, and so, that's kind of what I'm hearing little bit of a, a callback to is is that um, this this new age or new world of sinlessness mm-hmm. has won, but the word hasn't fully gotten out yet, and it, it across the whole kingdom. Oh man, that's just brilliant, dude! I had never thought of it that way. It's sort of like part of growing in Christ is getting the word out to all of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, individually. Uh, what it means to grow as a disciple of Jesus is 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 to get the word fully out to this Richard, mm-hmm. you know, and and part of Richard doesn't have the word yet and is still living in in the old way and behaving as if Christ has not come and redeemed me. Mm-hmm. So I will still behave as if there's no one looking out for me but me. So, and you had mentioned about the the Paul where in Romans he talks about what what I do, I do what I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Basically this, this tension. Yeah. Um, and then back in uh, Genesis four, is it mm-hmm. where God says to Cain, you can master mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. this sin. Mm-hmm. You got to be careful because it's crouching at your door, but you can master it. Mm-hmm. My, my question is kind of two parter. One, can you actually master it? Because Paul's obviously struggling with it and not mastering it. Yep. Can you master the implication or what, how I read that is you can mm-hmm. master it on your own. And two is how do you think about avoiding sin? Because it mm-hmm. sometimes, it, it seems like to Paul, but I think also to other people, mm-hmm. is that the more we focus on, hey, just don't sin, the more we step in it. Oh, this is, oh man, you, yeah. Yes. Um, the solution to sin is not a self-improvement project. That's actually taking another bite of the apple. Because then we are still trying to define good and evil um, and then using our own strength and power to create our own, I mean, to get back into what we lost. And and all that it does is make it worse. Um, I mean, there's nothing so toxic as a self-righteous religious jerk. 
You know, I mean, I've had conversations recently of the amount of damage that toxic religion and toxic religious leaders have done to people. And, And also just, you know, so there's a lot of what passes for Christianity that is, if you do a lot of good things and you get real committed and make a lot of decisions and do a, and, and you do and you do and you do, then God will be happy to you and get you into the good place. And you know, and and what that does is set you up for failure. And over and over, theologians have observed that if you try to climb the ladder up to heaven, Jacob's ladder. What happens is instead you miss God coming down and you're climbing the ladder of your own self-improvement project, which eventually you will weaponize against someone else because you'll know it's not working. So then you'll look for someone who seems to be not working you know, worse than you are and say, well, I may not be perfect, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Then you'll stigmatize them as a group and then you'll ostracize them and then we get the kind of people that Jesus you know, picked up and created as his followers because the religious people of his day did the same thing. Oh, by the way, those people who had climbed the religious ladder back then, they killed Jesus. So often religious righteousness is the worst sort of evil, you know, and, and you know, more evil has been done in the name of, of, of religious ladder climbing than, than I can describe. Uh, religions can be a really nasty beast. So what's the alternative? And I love this. The alternative is is not what you do, but what God did. In other words, the good news of the gospel is not what you got to do to get up there. That's good advice, and it's actually bad advice. Um, The good news of the gospel is what God has done to come down here. Uh, If you look at the dream about Jacob's ladder, he never climbs up. The angels go up and down, and then ultimately God comes down. Uh, If you look at Genesis 11... You know, the people want to make a name for themselves. They build a big on, big old tower to get up to heaven and then talk God into a temple on the top. The next chapter, after God sort of indicates that's not a very good idea, is God comes down to an obscure couple who is not going to have a legacy because they have no children. They're nobodies. They have no future. And God says, I'll make a future where there is no future. Mm-hmm. Walk with me. Yeah. So the invitation is this. Trust God. He's itching to give you life back. And not only that, he has promised that through all events, relationships, and circumstances, he will shape you back in the image of a real human being, which is who Jesus is. It says the likeness of Christ in Romans 8.29. And then there's, it's mentioned three or four more times in the, Old Test, in the New Testament that God has promised he will get you back there. Trust him. He's good for it. Mm-hmm. So the answer to how to... Um maybe how to look at sin, is not to avoid it in order mm-hmm. to earn mm-hmm. salvation, but to, right. to um, trust that God's earned your salvation mm-hmm. and avoiding sin is the, the best way to live, the, the wisest mm-hmm. way to live. And, and it shows that you are trusting him with what he's given. Here would be the best way to avoid sin. Stick with Jesus. In other words, if you try to avoid sin directly, you're probably going to sin. Yeah. Um, to think, yeah, it 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 just is. I am I'm kind of having a little bit of a brain fart, so I yeah. want to collect my thoughts no, you're for fine. a second. You're fine. Um, the way I personally know how to avoid sin is to hang with Jesus. And oh, I know. I was thinking of it. Is um, the issue is not how to be good enough to get to heaven. You know, in other words, the point isn't to get to heaven. The point is that God wants to get heaven into you. So let Him. 
So avoiding sin is letting God get rid of it. And that's trusting that he, which, and this is really paradoxical. The favorite place that God loves to go to work to put you back together is actually smack in the middle of your sin. Isn't that interesting? So it isn't avoiding sin to keep God happy, but letting God work with your sin so you stop sinning. Doing the redeeming that you've talked about in, through Genesis, the creation story. Yeah, yeah. Through what he's done on the cross. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All of it is, is using the sin yeah, yeah. to redeem it rather than completely avoid, well, I don't want to say not avoiding it, but yeah. it's more the redeeming of that sin, so letting God into yeah, that yeah. space. And, and, yeah. and I would say the place that that happens is the place of your relationship with God, which we call prayer. I mean, the more you just have a running conversation with him, the less likely you're going to do dumb stuff because he's going to work his wisdom in you. Uh, you will find yourself sinning less the more you hang with God. And that's kind of a Zen thing. In other words, you, you can't create a, a stop sinning project. You'll just get self-righteous, and that's annoying. Mm. But you can create – well, you can't even do that, but, but you can let God come near and let him establish a deep and incredible friendship where you discover how safe he is and how amazing he is. And, and that is just going to rewire you. Well, you will find yourself behaving like Jesus because Jesus was the first truly human being, and that's what God created us to be. And the more you're with him, the more you engage in his story and scripture, uh, the more you hang with people who are all trying to, to hang with Jesus together, the more you're going to find yourself different. So that growing a Christ will be an act of not doing something, but discovering something. Mm-hmm. You've previously talked about um, about a relationship with God as as like a relationship with anyone else. So yeah. if you think about your relationship with your spouse, you're not trying to necessarily do these things because you have to in that relationship. That relationship almost changes how you act because you want yeah. to have a good relationship with that person. Yeah. Um, so that's, I guess that's how I'm hearing what you're saying, if that's accurate. I want to give you kind of two quick metaphors. One is falling in love. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think of, of when you, you fell in love with your wife, um, you did not get up in the morning and say, I have these criterias for the perfect woman I want to marry. And then you saw your wife and said, oh, she fits the criteria. Check, 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 check. And so I shall fall in love. I'll make a decision to follow him. no you begin to wonder, why does my heart beat faster when I'm around this person? Why do I have this desire to be around this person? You know, why do I feel different? I want to be around this person. So you started being around this person, and eventually, that's all you could think of. And then you started picking up things, you know, with her, you know, her turns of phrases, her voices, they made you feel wonderful. You started behaving like her. You started adopting her perspective on things. And eventually you said, I want to be completely committed to you with no conditions for the rest of my life. We call that falling in love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's the analogy I would use with God is, is, is often we re- realize we've fallen in love with God. Yeah, that's good. Um, so, I like this idea of allowing God in and allowing him to redeem your sin through a relationship rather than just trying to keep these these laws and these rules. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, in the New Testament, there is a warning to avoid a unforgivable sin. Mm, and I've, yeah. I've heard people talk about this and and I think there's a little bit of like fear mm. 
and questioning, have I done that? Um, and I think it's in Mark 3. We, we were kind of talking right before about in parts in Matthew as well. Yeah. Um, help me understand the unforgivable sin. Oh, the unforgivable sin. Because God, sin. Has, through Jesus, has forgiven our sins. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there appears to be one that's not. Yeah. Oh, this is important um, because I remember as an adolescent just being terrified that, you know, um, you know, there's all these catch verses like the sin against the Holy Spirit. Well, have I sinned against the Holy Spirit? Or no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit, and no one can say Jesus is accursed if they have the Spirit. You know, then what happens is the phrase Jesus is accursed flows around in your brain, and you think, oh, no, I've lost my faith, you know, and then, you know, I mean, it, and then... And, and so a lot of people, even as adults, are terrified there's this line you can cross where God says, that's it, I've had it, I wash my hands of you, you are damned, and, and there's nothing you can do about it, you just are not worth saving. Um, let's take it in context. So what do we got? We got some priests there who are questioning Jesus' authority, and they say, this is not the Messiah, this is a demon-possessed man. And so Jesus makes a couple arguments. Number one, he says, that makes no sense. That would mean that the kingdom of Satan is a house divided, which means that, you know, because I'm going against Satan, and I and if I were satanic, I would be declaring a civil war, you know, and that's bizarre. So, A, you're talking nonsense, but B, watch it, because you are claiming that I am the enemy, and I am claiming I am God right in front of you. And if you decide I'm the enemy, then then you will interpret everything I do as the actions of the enemy, and it's really hard to come back from that road because you've decided ahead of time that everything I do is proof that I am satanic. So the unforgivable sin is not that God won't forgive you, but it's making a decision that God is bad. In other words, declaring, because I know what is good and what is evil, you are not God. So would it be accurate to say that it's not that it's unforgivable, it's more that Jesus is saying, well, if you get to that point, it's really hard mm-hmm. to ever come to a place where you realize that he is God. Very difficult to come back on that road. I think sometimes in addictions, we see people go where they seem to have gone to a point where there's no turning back. Yeah. And, and, you know, where there's a moment before where they could have gotten clean and sober with their life, and then there seems to be a moment where they've just gone so far, they don't want to change. And so what happens then is our own decisions imprison us. Mm-hmm. You see this with someone who has so much pride, they, they can't admit they're wrong, and they go down a road of self-destruction. You know, and, and, and so people will imprison themselves and then no matter how many times Jesus opens the prison door, they refuse to leave their own cell. So it's not that God can't save that or forgive that. It's mm-hmm. that just that that person um, cannot uh, accept the invitation that God's, already, that God's still giving them. Is that correct? Yeah, and I would use the word will not. Will not. Yeah, okay. in other words, we observe that people sometimes go down a road so far that they're locked in their own decision to rebel. Um, the way in, in classical philosophy is that the will binds itself. And so you are in a prison of your own making. And, and, and 
Some people even think that that hell, Rob Bell has an interesting example because he has a unique view of hell. I don't know if it's biblically supportable, but it helps in, the, in, in, in this case. He, he believes hell is eternal, not because God wants it to be eternal, but because the people who don't want to be with God have made an eternal decision. So theoretically, every now and then he goes down and checks if anybody wants out and everybody yells, hell no. <laughs> and, and so it's eternal because they won't leave. But not because God won't is God is trapping them. Mm-hmm. They've eternally bound themselves in rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, so what that winds up being is the sad mystery of human rebellion that's made permanent. Mm-hmm. So if you're sitting with someone who's saying, "I'm afraid I've committed the unforgivable sin," what would you what would your response to them be? As a, as a pastor, as a mm-hmm. you know someone sitting with someone struggling with something in their faith. I'd say I've got good news for you. If you're afraid about it, it means you haven't. Here are the people I'm afraid about is the people who are indifferent and don't care. Those are the people I get scared at. And that's just true from, from brain health. When people stop caring and, and, and they don't care about other people and they don't care what's, what their act, how, the impact of their actions on others, we usually call them psychopaths and sociopaths. And, you know, and you, and you will see this in religion. I mean, all a lot of the sexual abuse in religion, often you have religious leaders who've got to the place where they do not care about the suffering they're inflicting on people. They're scary people. Mm-hmm. So, but the average person who's who's terrified that you know that they have committed some sin or they're not worthy, oh, they're Jesus' favorite kind of people. He just wants to come around them and embrace them and say, "You have no idea about the love." that I've got for you. You are not beyond my love. You know, you know, that's the verse, you know, in Jeremiah, fear not for behold, I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. That's God's response to people who are afraid they've committed the unpardonable sin. And I've seen that, you know, if, if people have gone into really messed up lives, you know, where they've broken, let's say sexual boundaries, and they just think they're just dirt. Jesus like, Oh my goodness. No, 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 no. Here, just just and 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 he wants to lift them up and embrace them and say, you know, I want to show you what what real love is. I want to give you good news. That's Jesus' response to people who are terrified: is the good news. Yeah, you're not beyond redemption. Yeah, you have to work real hard for that one. Okay. So to kind of wrap things up, I've got maybe one ish final question. Uh-huh. Um, in the discussion of is fill in the blank sin. Yeah. You know, one of the things that Jesus commands his followers to do is to go teach people to obey. And so there's this discussion that a lot of people have around, well, is this a sin? Mm-hmm. Um, first half, I guess, is, um, the first par- part of the question is, is it always black and white? Is there a gray area of like, what is a sin, what is not? Uh-huh. And how would you engage in those conversations, maybe with Christians and with not- non-Christians? Um. When people say, is this a sin, is that a sin? I mean, sometimes it's blatant, is robbing a bank a sin? Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, on the other hand, there's an interesting case. Is, 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 is stealing always a sin? Well, sometimes if you're absolutely poor and your kids are dying of malnutrition and you see a bakery right down the block that's loaded, but no one wants to even give you the day-old bread because it, you know it might ruin the bottom line. I'm sorry, taking a dumpster, dumpster dive in their place, even though they've said no, might actually be a, a, the best bad option for your kids. Now, we've walked into situational ethics, um, and there's places where the Bible uses it. Um, Tamar 
dresses up as a prostitute to get Judah to perform his rites as a redeemer kinsman. We won't get into that, but at the end of the story, when Judah recognizes that he's done wrong by refusing to, to, uh, to perform to his obligation as the next of kin with Tamar, the widow, he says, she's more in the right than I am. And, and, and that just messes with Western understanding of law, because the Western understanding of law is absolute. You know, we made this law, there are no exceptions ever, 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 and it's great that you feed your kids by stealing day-old bread, but you still got to do the time. In fact, there was a French novel written in the 19th century called Les Miserables, all about that very problem, mm-hmm. where the guy gets thrown in jail for stealing bread for his starving children. Um, a better way to think about sin in the Bible is, um, if you want to know if something's a sin, are you loving God and serving the neighbor through this behavior or not? And if you want, and you, well, how would I know that? Well, then read the Bible. In other words, if you read the story of God with his people, you get a sense of God's values. And you get a sense of how God works God's values. And, and, and Jesus said, the whole law is summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, mind, and, 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 and then likewise love your neighbor as yourself. That's the filter I would use if I want to know if it's a sin or not, is if I do this action, am I fully loving the, the neighbor as myself? And am I loving the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? You know, if mm-hmm. I can say yes to that, then I'm not sinning. Mm-hmm. If I have to qualify that somehow, then I would say you're fudging it. Yeah, you're sinning. Yeah. And a lot of times, well, Jesus goes to that. He says, you know, you've heard, you know, thou shall not kill. And, but, you know, if you go after your neighbor in any way, if you disparage your neighbor, if you call your neighbor a fool, if you mock your neighbor, you violated that law because you're posture towards your neighbor's hostility. And that's what the you shall not murder is getting at. Mm-hmm. You know, and the same, you, you've heard it say you shall not commit adultery. Well, if you objectify someone and imagine what you'd like to do with them for your pleasure, you've, you, then you've committed adultery because you are looking at your neighbor like a toy rather than a real life person. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so, so sin is all about your heart posture. Do you have the posture of God, which is you see, it looks good, and you bless? Or do you have the heart posture of Roman broken human beings where you see it looks good and you take? That's good. Yeah. I think that's a good place to end. Yeah, do you I have anything so else that you want to, uh, that we maybe missed in this episode? I want to go back to um, you. I want to tell one story about, again, people afraid if they've sinned and, and okay. God won't love them anymore. Mm-hmm. There's a guy named Manasseh, and he was um, Hezekiah's king. Hezekiah was the greatest reformer in the Old Testament. Manasseh is the worst king in the Old Testament. He literally set up an altar to Moloch uh, in, the, in the temple square, and the altar to Moloch essentially was an idol with a big, wide open mouth with a fire in it, and he proceeded to shovel kids into it to satisfy Moloch. Uh, I can't think of anything nastier for king of Israel to do. Well, he gets um, carried off by the Assyrians when they evade, invade and winds up in prison and begins to reflect on his actions. Well, he repents. And God does this bizarre thing and restores him back on the throne. Um, that's shocking. It's very disturbing. Um, and you wonder why God would have such absolutely you know, sloppy grace you know, and, and do something like that. Well, it's good news for you and me because if if God can restore Manasseh, who was 
committing, you know, child sacrifices, then, you know, I don't care what you've done. You're a rank amateur. So don't worry. You are not beyond God's redemption. There is no sin that God can't forgive, and there's no broken life that God can't restore. Yeah. So that, to me, is the last word on sin. Yeah. It's kind of like Paul saying, I was the worst of the worst. Yeah, yeah. And and that's his message as well. Oh, he was a mass murderer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you everyone for listening to this episode. I sure learned a lot. I hope you did too. And uh, we look forward to our next conversation coming soon. Oh yeah, we're going to nerd out some more. So come nerd out with us. Yep. And just one quick thing before we go. Uh, again, we're going to be doing a Q&R episode here in a few weeks. If you have any questions that you'd like to ask Richard on one of the topics that we've covered so far, you can email me directly at eric.payton at hopewdm.org. That's Eric with a C and Peyton with an E. And just include the subject Uh, word with web. Um, Same thing if you have any ideas for a future topic you'd like to discuss. So send us those uh, in an email and we'd love to hear from you. So we'll talk to you next time. You bet. Take care.